The Swords of Iron War broke on October 7th, forcing Israel to fight on many fronts simultaneously, among them the international domain and the international judicial system. Most recently, a new challenge was added on this front, after South Africa submitted an application to the International Court of Justice at The Hague, alleging Israel was committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. I'm Dr. Afrat Sofa, and today in Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel, we will be joined by Natasha Hausdorf, a barrister at Six Pump Court Chambers and is a legal director of UK Lawyers for Israel, as well as a frequent speaker on international law, who will take us on a trip to the International Court of Justice to explore the international judicial system, the process awaiting Israel, its roots and its possible consequences. Natasha has a law degree from Oxford University, qualified as a solicitor at Skadden, and subsequently gained an LLM from Tel Aviv University, focusing on public international law and the law of armed conflict. Natasha, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Efrat, it's my pleasure. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. Before we dive in to the complicated world of international law, may I ask you, how did you get into this field? So I first encountered public international law as part of my uh, my law degree, my bachelor's, um, and it was already very apparent to me then uh, in the context of mooting competitions I was doing that issues of international humanitarian law uh, and the way that Israel was encountering them in the context of, uh, first of all, of course, in the 2006 war in Lebanon and then subsequently uh, in the first uh, cast-led operation in Gaza in 2008 and through uh, every one of those, um, the debate and the discussion about international humanitarian law and and Israel's uh, upholding of it uh, was increasingly skewed. And I saw that firsthand when I started learning about the principles of humanitarian law um, and how it was that Israel was applying those. Um, And that started off uh, a a real passion of mine. It's one I pursued uh, later on in in my academic study at uh, Tel Aviv University and also one I uh, was involved in quite a bit of research uh, in relation to it at Columbia Law School um, when I was a fellow there some some years later. So uh, that's definitely where it, it started, my academic exposure. But then since, of course, it's become such a central part of the way that Israel's discussed and the way that uh, the situation is covered in the international media um, and the importance, really, of, of setting the record straight, especially on the application of the laws of armed conflict, um, has, has become somewhat all-consuming. <laughs> And, and we've we've been really fortunate to have you front that in and it's become another front in the war and we are so privileged to have you um, be a part of our cause truly because also within kind of law school and within my legal training public international law was um, theoretical in a way and it's so amazing that you have turned it into a very tangible part of the cause. Well, I, I hope I haven't turned, you know, anything uh, into anything else. I, I think the important thing is is to be clear about, you know, what the law says and push back at, on so many of the misrepresentations. And it's a real lament of mine um, that I think 
the general public literacy and understanding of international law is is so low that it has been very susceptible to being misrepresented. And understandably, uh, you know, even for lawyers, when they hear international law being deployed robustly uh, and confidently by Israel's detractors, uh, there is a hesitancy to want to push back against it because often people just lack the knowledge. Um, And it has meant that we have seen a phenomenon developing, and it's been decades in the making. It's a form of lawfare. It's an abuse of legal processes, legal principles, and and also legal language. And we have seen uh, a concerted effort across an army of NGOs that uh, trade in this uh, pseudo-legal terminology. But unfortunately, these are political terms that are being deployed as though they have uh, legal meaning and legal weight. And we see it in the context of allegations of ethnic cleansing, of uh, occupation, of colonialism, um, that the legal abuses here are inextricably linked in many ways with um, the the shift in narrative um, and the combination of that with... uh, you know, intersectionality approaches to demonizing Israel. Um, an awful lot of that has unfortunately been wrapped up in uh, processes in the academy. And I think in the international law academy, we're seeing a phenomenon that has developed where there isn't an open debate anymore. And so many academics are being silenced simply for calling out the basic facts and the basic law, especially in in the last few months that we've seen developing with this situation. So it's so important to to get proper debate happening again uh, and for people to confidently stand up and and champion, you know, real international law, because it's, it's not just Israel that's under threat, I think, from this phenomenon. It's also the credibility that international law has. And the more that we're seeing it politicised, I think uh, that the the more danger there is, first of all, that other law-abiding states are going to be targeted with a similar abuse and similar lawfare practices, but also undeniably that tarnishes the reputation of international law as a whole. And that's a, a serious problem. Absolutely. And I think that your clarity of of um, really highlighting what um, these international law concepts mean in reality has really grounded the debate. What I noticed is that shortly after October 7th, before Israel fired a single bullet, there were already these terms being bandied about and manipulated politically. Um, proportionality is is the first word that comes to mind. And it was um, really a a, a godsend that you were there to go back to basics and to explain what proportionality really does mean in public international law. The the misrepresentation of proportionality, unfortunately, is nothing new. Uh, And again, we've seen it um, in the context of of every single operation that Israel has been forced into in in the Gaza Strip. And we've seen uh, the pushback against the false you know, equivalents that people are, are seeking to uh, to get at with proportionality, this idea that it's, a, it's about comparing body counts. We, we've seen pushback against that after every single uh, conflict in the Gaza Strip. Uh, the high-level military group comes to mind uh, who have put out report after report assessing 
Israel's conduct in previous operations in the Gaza Strip and Israel's adherence to, amongst other things, the rule of proportionality uh, from customary international law. Um, And an explanation that, of course, uh, proportionality is a balancing exercise. It is conducted by responsible military commanders when they weigh up individual strikes and compare the anticipated military advantage of a strike against the anticipated collateral damage, the harm to civilians. And that framework, I think, is quite difficult for people who aren't necessarily invested in in international law and, and in the law of armed conflict in particular to understand, because it is a framework that comes with a grotesque um, basis to it, which is that it is inevitable in armed conflict that civilians will be killed. Uh, Collateral damage is something that I think lawyers, military lawyers and uh, military professionals take for granted, but it is a is a horrible thing to have to come to terms with. And expressing this balancing exercise and general discourse is is difficult because it comes with that acceptance that war is a terrible business and civilians perishing is an inevitability. And all that responsible law-abiding armies are able to do is keep those civilian casualties down as much as they can by exercising responsible military decisions and conformity with the principle of proportionality, but also with the principle of precaution. Uh, And that is another aspect of of Israel's conduct um, throughout its previous operations, and and by all accounts, um, from those that have been reporting uh, off the ground in Gaza, uh, in this one also. And, And it's reflective, I think it's important to remember, of the processes that the IDF puts into place. So the military advocate general corps uh, the legal advisors in Israel's army um, are embedded within units to an extent that I, I don't think we see in other you know, law-abiding armies even. Uh, and they are making calls on a strike-by-strike basis and, and often in real time. Um, they sit outside of the military chain of command so that they can tell more senior officers yes or no in relation to individual strikes. And and they can do that with a changing situation and based on the intelligence that Israel has uh, of the situation on the ground in Gaza. And we see repeated examples that uh, Dovet Zal, the Israeli army spokes- spokesperson Zina, puts out of, you know, for example, drone strikes or, um, you know, anticipated strikes against military targets that are called off at the last moment because uh, it becomes plain to the people that are charged with conducting these strikes, that there are too many civilians in the vicinity. And I think therein also lies an important lesson because in addition to the military legal processes and procedures that are gone through in relation to the strikes list, targeting protocols, ultimately you have people who are having to make these decisions in real time. And an analysis of the the kind of people uh, that are charged with these you know, horrific life or death decisions is critical. And in that context, the fact that Israel is a citizen army that is made up of ordinary people, over 300,000 of whom have been called up into reserve duty. Some of them have presented themselves without being needed to be uh, called up. And, and that is an, an incredible testament to um, the, the, the spirit uh, in Israel and, and the real need and the understanding of that need to defend uh, to defend your family, 
when it comes down to it, especially uh, after the horrific, horrific atrocities of the 7th of October. But the fact that these are ordinary people who have left their jobs, be it in uh, high tech or in agriculture, in order to defend their families, they do so um, at all times upholding the moral and ethical code of the IDF, which they have instilled in them from the very first days of basic training. And that has at its forefront of the highest value protection of civilian life. And that applies to Israeli civilian life. It also applies to Palestinian civilian life. And we see examples on a daily basis emerging from the Gaza Strip now of that in practice. Thanks for painting the mm. context because it really is so, so vital. And it's usually missed out on the, in the general narrative. Now, most recently, we've seen on the news that South Africa has submitted an application against Israel to the International Court of Justice at The Hague. What is this court and what is its authority and where did it originate? So the first thing I think to uh, clarify about the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, is that it is a different institution from the International Criminal Court, the ICC. They both sit in The Hague. Uh, and frequently, especially over the last couple of weeks, there's you know, been reference to the Hague Court and the two seem to be conflated. So the International Court of Justice that you've mentioned has authority between states and international law generally operates between states. Uh, it is the judicial organ of the United Nations and it has two functions. It deals with disputes between states, and that is um, the sort of case that we've seen play out last week. South Africa has brought a case of dispute, it, it claims, against Israel and an application for provisional measures, which we can go into in, in more detail in due course. Um, but it claims that it has a bilateral dispute with Israel about the application of the Genocide Convention. The other function that the International Court of Justice has is that it sits as, uh, it has an advisory capacity and it can provide an advisory opinion if it's requested, for example, by the General Assembly, uh, as it was requested by a General Assembly resolution in December 2022, uh, also in relation to Israel. So there were in fact two live cases, uh, as it were, that are targeting Israel at the moment. Both of them, uh, I would argue, are clear examples of lawfare against the Jewish state. In the context of the advisory opinion, we've seen an unprecedented situation where the court has been asked, what are the legal consequences of a whole host of violations of international law that are being alleged against Israel? So it's not actually being asked to advise on the legal position or whether those allegations have any basis to them. We can certainly go through them in, in more detail if, if people are interested, but um, I, I would suggest that that it is uh, a, another example of fabricated uh, legal uh, positions being put forward towards Israel. But the court's not even being asked to advise on those. It's being asked to take those as given and suggest, you know, what consequences arise from it. And um, it's plain that those that have been driving towards this uh, advisory opinion are seeking um, an answer along the lines of BDS. 
Israel has, has behaved so appallingly, uh, they claim that uh, the only um, proper legal consequences are going to be boycott, divestment and sanctions. And South Africa is is a, a key in that case also because so much of um, the current law for activities against Israel are supposedly modelled on the international community's approach to South Africa during apartheid. And one of the reasons we have seen this this slur, uh, this canard of apartheid being levelled so consistently at Israel, not just by states and political actors, but also by NGOs such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, is to build that lawfare initiative uh, and to seek to isolate Israel in the international community. I wrote an article in the Jewish Chronicle uh, last week where I said that this was a form of apartheid against the state of Israel, of trying to isolate it in the international legal community. These are not just double standards that are being applied against Israel. It is a total, complete inversion of the law. And we are seeing the same in the context of the contentious case, this this application that South Africa has brought against Israel, because it has the audacity to use the term genocide, which of course was coined in order to give a legal language to the atrocities of the Holocaust. The idea that a crime could be committed with the intent of wiping out a people, which is what the Jews were subject to uh, in World War II, was not something that international lawyers had grappled with before the end of World War II. And Raphael Lemkin famously proposed the concept of genocide to provide a framework to understand what that crime was and how that crime operated. And, and the reason it's it's unique is that it depends, um, the most important aspect of the crime of genocide is the intention to wipe out a group as such, because it is a group. And that is how the Jews were targeted uh, by the Nazis in, in World War II. So for, for South Africa to, to take this term and invert it or abuse it in this way, against Israel. Um, the irony shouldn't be lost, but that is uh, the latest episode that we have witnessed in this campaign of lawfare against Israel. In many respects, it wasn't surprising because of the build-up to it. Uh, and you'll see, if anyone deigns to read the 84-page the uh, application that South Africa put in, there is a great deal of recounting of the last couple of decades of lawfare against Israel, UN reports in which legal terminology has been abused uh, in order to uh, manufacture allegations against Israel. Um, the accusation of apartheid is, is central to that. Again, this is a legal term defined in international law, which is, is being utterly manipulated and abused vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel. But so much of, of the reports that were relied upon by South Africa, even in its most recent application, are part of this mechanism, this machine of lawfare, this army of NGOs that I mentioned that are uh, developing these reports, uh, manufacturing this evidence. And what we have to understand about the, the South Africa case 
is that it, it's not just about what consequences, I appreciate you'll probably come on to ask me about that in due course, but it's not just about what consequences might arise from, you know, the court finding in South Africa's favour. It's also about the process by through which the material that South Africa is seeking to put before the court is going through. Because what they are trying to do is give a, a judicial stamp of approval to all of the false information contained in these reports from NGOs and even from UN bodies and special rapporteurs and say, well, look, now that the court has found it to be uh, valid, they will argue, uh, it can be deployed as as proper evidence. And undoubtedly, we're going to see um, if that comes to be this being deployed in other legal contexts, including most likely in the international uh, criminal court. And it's also clear that uh, the the desire for an advisory opinion, so this other track that is currently going through the International Court of Justice at the moment, is uh, is likely going to manifest itself in, in the context of uh, additional documents and additional papers being put towards the International Criminal Court. I'll just finish with a, a final word, if I may, on, on the ICC to explain that whereas the ICJ deals with states, the ICC deals with individuals and it has jurisdiction over the criminal conduct of individuals. Now, it doesn't have jurisdiction over Israel because the court gets its mandate from what is called the Rome Statute, 1998 Rome Statute, uh, in which states who are members, who have signed themselves up to this uh, this convention, um, this treaty, they accept the jurisdiction of the court over their nationals. Israel didn't sign up to the Rome Statute. Um, For that matter, the United States didn't either. And I think that the reason uh, neither of the states ultimately signed up to a statute that they were in the initial stages at least extremely instrumental in uh, formulating is, is very telling. One of the examples of this um, appears in in Article 8 of the Rome Statute and the definition of certain crimes. And I think it became clear uh, towards the latter stages of drafting that this was a court that was going to be used for political purposes because of uh, some of the changes of the definitions uh, in Article 8. Uh, I think it became clear to Israel and the United States that the court was likely going to be used politically to target Israel, and so neither of those states joined up to it. But albeit that these are separate legal institutions, and as I say, the ICC has jurisdiction over individuals, uh, the ICJ jurisdiction over states, um, undoubtedly, there is a, a synergy and there are um, attempts to cross-pollinate between uh, these lawfare initiatives against Israel uh, at a variety of these legal institutions. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. It, it's astounding that um, all of these mechanisms are being put into place where it's almost like um, an Alice in Wonderland on steroids gone a bit dark, where it seems like there is a, a concerted effort to use lawfare against Israel and um, encourage anti-Jewish hate, for lack of a better term. Natasha, you've mentioned um, the term of lawfare which is a fascinating one on its own. So perhaps you could say a couple of words on what lawfare is. And something that might come up in the mind of our listeners is 
if a um, a group were to were to not, for example, use violent means to express their desires, their political um, goals, is there any other legal recourse other than, um, say, the ICJ or the ICC to address um, any perceived mis- mishandling of justice or injustice as they would perceive it? Sure. Well, first of all, lawfare is, um, I think, as I said, an abuse of of law and legal processes uh, to pursue a political agenda. Um, I think we saw a, an op-ed from Mahmoud Abbas, I believe it was in 2011, in the New York Times, where he called for an internationalization of the conflict as a legal, not just a political matter. And that was uh, Abbas, who's still president of the Palestinian Authority. Um, That was his declaration of lawfare. Um, It had been going on um, already for for some time before that. I mentioned the the NGOs that are a a key critical part of this. Um, And it's clear that there is a a strong initiative with serious amounts of funding behind it um, to create so-called humanitarian NGOs with a clear political agenda, which is to to blacken Israel's name and to uh, manufacture many of these uh, pseudo-legal allegations against it. Um, Some of these operate from within Israel. uh, And when you ask about what legal recourse is there, they frequently make applications to the Israeli courts. uh, And the ability to petition directly the High Court of Justice, so the Supreme Court sitting in its capacity as the High Court of Justice in Israel, um, is is unparalleled uh, in other jurisdictions. You don't need to be an Israeli citizen. um, And uh, this is frequently taken advantage of um, perfectly properly um, in terms of the the legal procedure uh, by uh, Palestinians, by NGOs, both Palestinian NGOs and Israeli NGOs acting on on their behalf. Uh, And the Supreme Court sitting as a high court of justice is frequently dealing with these sorts of issues. Interesting to note, actually, a a complete contrast. Uh, If we look at a previous advisory opinion that the International Court of Justice put out, the the 2004 so-called wall opinion, this was the court being asked to opine on the legality of Israel's security barrier that it built uh, to contend with waves of suicide bombings. Uh, In that respect, the barrier was well, totally successful in in that it stopped infiltrations uh, of suicide bombers um, that were subjecting uh, the Israeli citizenry to, well, massacres. I I can't think of of another word to describe, you know, pizzerias, discotheques, cafes, restaurants, uh, exploding buses, markets being attacked. Um, But when the International Court of Justice sat on that issue, and deliberated in order to provide its advisory opinion, which I stress is not legally binding, but is authoritative, uh, it did not consider the reasons that Israel built the barrier. It didn't consider the evidence of the security situation, the difficulty that Israel was contending with in terms of the suicide bombings, um, when it uh, opined, unlike the Israeli Supreme Court, sitting as the High Court of Justice, uh, in a number of cases where it recognised the reasons that the government put forward uh, for the building of the barrier, and it it assessed the route on a metre-by-metre basis, and balancing 
the security interests of the state against the individual interests of those uh, ordinary uh, Palestinians who were impacted by the route. Uh, They uh, assessed the proposed route and in some cases uh, ordered it to be changed. So there is a difference between you know, courts that are uh, grappling with the legal issues in Israel and those that uh, deal with, unfortunately, lawfare initiatives in the international legal context devoid of the facts and the reality behind it and are, are simply presented information which is incredibly misleading. Unfortunately, we're seeing what happened in the context of uh, the original advisory opinion in 2004 uh, potentially replayed in the context of the advisory opinion that was sought last year from the court and UK Lawyers for Israel, which is an organisation I'm very privileged to uh, to volunteer for for you know, the last decade, uh, we put in a submission uh, together with Elnet um, to the International uh, Court of Justice vis-a-vis this new opinion to highlight the danger that they face on the basis of the lack of information that they've been provided with and the misinformation that the court has been provided with and and invited them uh, to decline to offer an opinion on the basis that they simply uh, aren't well enough informed. And one of the uh, key illustrations for that is a judgment of um, the former president of the Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, where he analysed the 2004 um, wall opinion uh, and compared it with the uh, Supreme Court of Israel's approach and and highlighted the real deficiencies and the way in which uh, the International Court of Justice had been misled. So when we look at that comparison, I think it's clear that there is an avenue for recourse, an avenue for Israeli authorities to be held to account, and that is in the court process uh, in Israel, um, which in so many respects, not least in the context of standing and the ability of anyone to petition the court, is unparalleled. Thank you so much for clarifying that. So we we can see here that there is an alternative to this um, international lawfare instrument should people feel that justice has been miscarried or uh, should they feel aggrieved? And it's frequently utilised. Um, so many uh, lawyers from around the world, when they come to visit, I, I've worked at the Supreme Court in 2016, uh, and so many delegations of lawyers were just gobsmacked at the number of cases that the court dealt with, the, the, as the Americans would refer to it, the docket list. Uh, it's it's just extraordinary. But the workload that the court gets through is, is because, uh, in large part, of, of that direct route for petitioners to access the High Court of Justice. Thank you so much for that. And on a global scale, quickly, um, you highlighted the kind of journey of the use of lawfare, thinking strategically. Could this have been something that was strategically um, thought out by those looking to catch Israel out? Oh, absolutely. By those seeking to, to target Israel. When I when I talked about Abbas's um, op-ed, uh, I mean, the, the, the lawfare processes were already up and running, if you will, at the time. But what was clear from, from the approach of the Palestinian Authority then was, you know, a general acceptance, as, as much of the Arab world has, has now come to terms with, that Israel isn't going anywhere. They, they can't wipe it off the map militarily. And so this was a change of approach instead of warfare, lawfare. And it goes hand in glove with the attempts at delegitimization on a, on a political 
uh, level, on the international stage, diplomatically. Um, and what's interesting is that you will hear from Israeli diplomats who are engaging with their counterparts around the world often that they actually get on on a person-to-person level pretty well with some of those representatives of countries that are leading the charge against Israel and UN uh, General Assembly resolutions or UN Human Rights Council resolutions. But they are clear that when it comes to, you know, these lawfare initiatives, they have their marching orders, they, they have their agenda that they need to pursue, and that's business as usual. And we have seen a kind of general acceptance that this is the way the UN and other international bodies work. But the amount of um, well, anti-Israel propaganda, I can't, I can't really think of another way of describing it, um, the cumulative effect of that has plainly had an enormous impact on the international consensus and, and public opinion. And therefore, what countries feel that they are able to say. And I think that's why we've seen this almost schizophrenic approach uh, from spokespeople from the US, from the UK, and from some of uh, other allies of Israel, that on the one hand, they will understand and recognise Israel's inherent right to self-defence. They will recognise how important it is that they support Israel uh, against this Islamist fundamentalist terrorism, this ISIS-like style of attack. In many respects, I would argue, in fact, that Hamas has behaved even worse than ISIS. Um, Because Western liberal democratic states also ultimately understand that it's not just Israel that is being targeted by this menace, the West is next, is something that uh, I'm sure uh, governments around the world have have, uh, internalised. And yet we see pressure uh, to come out with um, banal statements uh, critical of Israel and its approach, um, suggesting that there may be breaches of uh, international humanitarian law, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Um, By that, I don't mean that, that the clear track record I don't just mean the clear track record that Israel has in respect of of previous uh, conflicts in Gaza and the processes that it has in place, but also, um, you know, if we if we want to come down to it, the numbers that are coming out uh, of the Gaza Strip, we have to be very careful, of course, because the casualty figures that are put out by the Palestinian Ministry of Health are Hamas controlled. We know that they cannot be trusted. I mean, the one example that is often cited now is coming from the 17th of October which was the uh, Al-Ahli hospital strike, uh, which was reported, of course, around the world as uh, an Israeli airstrike on a hospital in Gaza. And we found out that that was palpably untrue. Not only was it a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket that fell short, it was a rocket that, in fact, didn't hit the hospital, it hit the hospital car park. But the figures, the casualty figures that were put out in the first few minutes after that strike, after that explosion, were in the region of 500 casualties. That figure was never revised, even though it's accepted to be ultimately uh, palpably incorrect. Um, But it's part of of the casualty figures that are being um, repeated by uh, broadcast media around the world coming out of of the Hamas-controlled Palestinian Ministry of Health. But even if we take those figures as a starting point, and we understand that Israel has now uh, reported that it has confirmed to have killed 9,000 
terrorists, militants, combatants, however you want to term them. These are individuals that Israeli intelligence has identified as being members of Palestinian terrorist organizations, have been actively involved as combatants in the war against Israel. And on that basis, we're looking at a civilian to combatant ratio in the region of two to one. Now, that's two, potentially two civilians killed to every one combatant. I would agree that any civilian killed is too many. It's a tragedy. We should not be in that position where we witness uh, the undoubted destruction that Hamas has brought down on the civilian population in the Gaza Strip. But we need to see it in the context. We need to understand what armed conflict around the world looks like. And in the context of uh, UN statistics relating, as I understand it, to urban warfare, it's a very difficult environment in order to avoid civilian casualties, especially in the context in Gaza, where Hamas are using the civilian population as human shields and uh, deliberately basing their terror activities out of schools and hospitals and clinics, uh, using ambulances to transport weapons and terrorist fighters. When we compare it to the global average, according to the United Nations statistics, that's nine to one. Nine civilians killed for every one combatant. When we compare it to American statistics coming out of Afghanistan and, and its operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, that's between three to one and five to one. I've, um, I mean, other than previous operations that Israel has conducted, uh, where in, in May of, of 2023, I think the, the stats that were being put out were 0.6 to 1. It was a different different operation. So it, Israel has been beaten, it seems, only by its own track record in a less intensive uh, armed conflict. Um, and the fact that this civilian to combatant casualty ratio is so low is testament to the measures that Israel takes, the precaution, the warnings to civilians, the creation of civilian uh, humanitarian corridors and safe zones, even though Hamas exploits those zones in order to fire missiles onto Israeli civilians from within them. Uh, Israel created them. Israel has provided assistance to individual uh, Palestinians in order to flee because Hamas are, are shooting them in the street to prevent them from fleeing the areas in which they are conducting their terrorist activities because they don't want to lose their human shields. And it's important to remember that for, for Hamas, this is a win-win. Because when Israel doesn't target Hamas terror infrastructure because the proportionality analysis is out of sync and there are just simply too many civilians to enable it to take out Hamas terror infrastructure, Hamas wins. And if Israel attacks the terrorists in order to seek to release the hostages, in order to prevent rocket launches from continuing to target Israeli civilian communities, and if civilians are killed as a result of those strikes... Hamas wins. And that is their aim here. They are seeking to pressure Israel internationally uh, by putting out false casualty figures uh, and by uh, generating real civilian casualties where there needn't be any. And there is another um, real problem here where the international community is, is ultimately failing the Palestinian people. And that's real international law obligations that are being flouted. Egypt's international law obligations, for example, as a signatory since 1980 to the African Union Convention on Refugees, which has a much broader definition of refugee than uh, 
than the uh, convent- refugee convention has. It includes those fleeing civil disorder. It includes the Palestinians that present themselves on the border at Rafah. Egypt has a legal obligation that it has signed itself up to to allow those refugees under the African Union definition to cross the border and it is failing to do so. And we hear nothing from the international community. And just imagine if those Palestinian civilians had been permitted across the border to the other side, to the Egyptian side of Rafah, where they could have been properly provided for, where humanitarian aid would not be diverted by Hamas as it is consistently being diverted in the Gaza Strip to, to, to support the terror infrastructure and then they sell the excess at massively inflated prices. If Egypt had been pressured by the international community to comply with its international law obligations, we would be looking at a completely different situation. Why is this not being raised by the international community? Indeed, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very good question. You mentioned uh, a couple of moments ago, um, Judge Aaron Barak, and he is serving on the um, panel of judges in the ICJ case um, at the moment. He's serving, uh, I, I should clarify, as, as what's called an ad hoc judge. So there were 15 judges uh, that are serving on the court. And because neither South Africa nor Israel uh, has a judge sitting on the court, each party is permitted to appoint an additional judge. So uh, there is an Israeli and a South African ad hoc judge sitting in addition to uh, the full court panel. What are the actual allegations against Israel and what are they based on? Um, The case that South Africa advances is based on the Genocide Convention. Now, this is why Israel has uh, appeared last week in order to uh, robustly uh, reply, respond to this allegation because it is a signatory to the convention and it has accepted the jurisdiction of the court in relation to it. This is a very calculated ploy by South Africa. Um, It is not, if you ask me, being advanced because there is any case that Israel has gone anywhere close to committing genocide. Um, The first part of the analysis on that has to begin with the intention to destroy a group and everything that Israel has done in the Gaza Strip to protect Palestinian life, civilian life, uh, and to uh, take precautions and to provide safe zones and all of that militates completely in the other direction. But the reason South Africa has alleged genocide here is to give it the hook, the platform, um, to to bring Israel into the jurisdiction of, of the court on this issue. Uh, because they are both signatories. It's also done so on the basis of uh, some recent case law of the court, um, the Myanmar case and, and also the, uh, the the Russia-Ukraine case in relation to provisional measures. Um, both of those cases uh, concern the Genocide Convention. And uh, that that's provided South Africa with, if, if you will, the, the, the platform and, as I say, the, the hook. Um, but it was clear from the both the application itself, but also the manner in which this was presented by South Africa in the International Court of Justice on on Thursday. You're referring to January 9th. Feels like a lifetime ago. It does. It really does. (laughs) Um, That uh, there was no legal factual basis uh, for them to advance. So unfortunately, I think if, if the court does determine this against Israel, 
this will be a clear indication that uh, that court has also been lost to these lawfare initiatives. And at least on this subject, we have seen very strong statements coming out of the UK, coming out of the United States, and also coming out of Germany. Um, Germany stating clearly that it will be making a submission on Israel's part in the context of these proceedings. And I think a statement to that effect that comes even before the preliminary decision uh, on the basis of South Africa's application for provisional measures is concerned is, is pretty critical. Especially from Germany. Well, especially from Germany on the basis of, of the history and what they've said in the context of their statement and, and their you know, responsibility for real genocide. Um, incredibly important, significant, moving even. But there's another level at which Germany's uh, involvement here is, is significant, and that is reflective of, I think, an understanding of the attack that South Africa has initiated, not just against Israel, but against the international legal order and against law-abiding states around the world, to suggest that a state, if it wishes to comply with international law, will be prevented from defending itself against terrorists who rape, butcher, burn, slaughter children in front of their parents and kidnap innocent civilians to suggest that Israel must immediately cease its military operation in Gaza, which is what South Africa has applied to the court uh, to seek to achieve, is unconscionable. And as I say, it doesn't just affect Israel, it affects every single law-abiding state that values the rule of law. And to see it under attack and under threat in this context, the International Court of Justice, uh, really does, uh, should worry um, all law-abiding states because it would give carte blanche to terrorist organizations around the world uh, to act with impunity. And one of the key indicators uh, that at least some, that, that, that the foremost state sponsor of terror Iran thinks that this is the direction that the court is going in, is that Iran rejoined the jurisdiction of the court uh, in the spring of uh, last year. And that speaks volumes for who uh, and what will seek to use, and I would suggest abuse, the court for their own purposes in the not-too-distant future. And this case will be critical in uh, indicating you know, where the International Court of Justice is actually travelling to, and if it is going the way of the International Criminal Court, if it, if it is going the way of the UN Human Rights Council and becoming essentially an instrument of rogue terror regimes. That is alarming indeed, and really is a wake-up call to all law-abiding nations who, who do hold true to international law. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Practically speaking, what will be the next steps in the court in the next few weeks? Who will decide eventually whether Israel is guilty of genocide or not? And what will Israel's response be? How do you see it playing out? Well, in the next few weeks, we're not going to get a determination. Um, and and often people talk about it in terms of guilt or, or conviction. Um that language is potentially a little bit misleading as, as it concerns you know, the issues that have come before the court. Um, it's important to 
recognise it. It's very unusual that a case would have come on quite this quickly. Um, a substantive case would normally take, you know, a number of years even, um, given given the general list uh, at, at the court. But what South Africa applied for uh, as a matter of urgency were provisional measures in relation to Israel. And for the court to order provisional measures, it needs to make a, a provisional determination. And according to its own recent case law, that is on the basis of plausibility. Is it plausible, the case that South Africa is advancing? Now, if you ask me, it's not plausible, um, and that should be quite an easy uh, issue to determine. But of course, it's a, it's a far, far lower threshold, a far lower burden for South Africa to seek uh, to prove than, um, than would be the case uh, if the court were considering the substantive merits of this case. Um, Israel's invitation to the court was to reject the application for provisional measures, but also to reject the application of South Africa as a whole and to remove the case from the list. Uh, and if the court is still functioning properly as a, as a court of law, it would be my expectation that it acquiesce to that request and determine that this case is entirely devoid of merit. The court has said that it will issue the uh, its preliminary ruling as soon as possible. Realistically, uh, that could mean weeks, it could mean months. Um, there is obviously a great deal of attention on the court uh, and um, many states have, have already issued statements in relation to uh, the weightiness of this decision and this determination. But in terms of consequences, I mean, if we think about what South Africa is asking for and if it was successful in obtaining uh, an indication from the court that said Israel should cease its military operation in Gaza. I mean, realistically, what is Israel able to do? Sit on its hands while rockets continue to be fired at Israeli civilian communities from the Gaza Strip? No state can be expected to do that. And it would also be contrary to the fundamental provisions of international law more so than that, the right of self-defence isn't bestowed by any uh, international law. It's in fact an inherent right, which is recognised in international law. Famously in Article 51 of the UN Charter, recognises a state's inherent right to self-defence. It is so fundamental. It is every state's first responsibility to protect its citizens. And that is what Israel is doing. That is what is, it has been recognised as doing. Uh, by by its allies. Uh, and you will see the phraseology that is often deployed, Israel has a right to self-defence, within the confines of international humanitarian law. Excellent. Spot on. There is an implication, however, in that, uh, that Israel might not be complying with international law, or at least that's how much of the media is seeking to interpret it. That I would robustly push back on. It is absolutely right. Israel has a right to defend itself in compliance with international law, and that is what Israel is doing. You will hear from military experts, Colonel Richard Kemp among them, that Israel has the most moral army in the history of warfare. Uh, and the reason that he is in a position to say that, um, as a former member of, of COBRA uh, and the former commander of British forces in, in Afghanistan, uh, is because with you know the military experience, not just of the British Army, but also um, the, the way the British Army liaises with, with other uh, allied armies around the world, he understands the processes. He understands the application of international law. 
uh, and, and how it is that that is applied practically. And he has, uh, in every operation in the Gaza Strip since 2008, borne witness to how Israel goes above and beyond the requirements of international law in armed conflict to protect civilian life. And he and, and others have spoken up and, and robustly uh, you know, reported uh, those facts, including to the UN Human Rights Council, um, where he, he sort of famously uttered that, that analysis and said Israel is the most moral army in the history of warfare. So um, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, the fact that we're seeing uh, states, unfortunately, uh, seemingly hedging their bets and seeking to qualify Israel's actions uh, or their support of Israel's actions um, by deploying this caveat of as long as it complies with international law, it will become clearer, no doubt, after this war and after the reports are written and the analysis is is properly uh, undertaken and uh, undoubtedly the you know issues of accountability are brought before the legal system in, in Israel as they as they always are. Uh, but I fully expect, on the basis of what I have seen, for the situation. Um, for, for the for the answers to come out consistently with previous operations, uh, which is to endorse Israel's upholding of international law. The World Jewish Congress is near and dear to our hearts. And um, we have many listeners from around the world who wish to help. Natasha, what is the role of Jewish institutions such as the World Jewish Congress in, in the process? How can they participate in the mission of defending Israel? And what are they doing regarding this process? I think it's so important uh, that organisations with reach and voice robustly push back on so many of these falsehoods and make Israel's case also in terms of the international law issues robustly and don't shy away from these issues. And... um, I can entirely understand, you know, reluctance to uh, to speak to the interests of the people, talk about people-to-people diplomacy, and that it has an important place. But what we have witnessed in terms of uh, this misinformation campaign about international law specifically, I think requires uh, a concerted effort to educate on these issues and to engage in them and not run away from them. And that applies, you know, across all of the, um, the, the canards that we've mentioned, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, uh, disproportionality, occupation, um, colonialism. Ultimately, you know, there are, there are legal aspects that come into that form of analysis also. And it's important to tackle these head on and to give people the tools to engage in them. Because shying away, leaving the field, uh, just leaves it open, unfortunately, for uh, organisations that are seeking to to abuse these concepts in order to attack Israel. And we have to be clear that this is the modern form of anti-Semitism. All of these organisations rightly pride themselves on combating Jew hate, But when we consider how Israel is treated uh, and libeled, we also have to recognize that these are the modern blood libels. The late great rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, explained the evolution of anti-Semitism 
in a masterful fashion. He talked about the mutating virus of anti-Semitism. What started in the Middle Ages as a uh, hatred of the Jewish religion uh, focused in on religious practices and the ancient blood libels of Jews killing Christian children to use their blood to make matzah, also well poisoning. I mean, that was a focus of a hatred on the Jewish race. Um, Lord Sachs then discussed how, as science took over from religion as the order of the day, the hatred of the Jewish race mutated and it focused on the Jewish race as opposed to the religion. And eugenics, the pseudoscience of eugenics, was used to justify a hatred of the Jewish race. Looking at that final mutation into the modern day, Lord Sachs has said that international law and human rights have become the order of the day, have taken over even from science. And so the hatred of the Jewish race has manifested itself in modern blood libels against the Jewish state that manifest themselves in the context of international law and human rights. And we need to be clear that hatred of Israel is the modern form of anti-Semitism. It is the acceptable face of anti-Semitism. We've seen this, unfortunately, in the United Kingdom with where the Labour Party was taken to under the Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and that ability to hide behind this idea, oh, I don't have a problem against Jews, my problem's with Zionists, that needs to be called out. And Jewish organisations are best placed to call that out and to make sure that the anti-Semites cannot hide behind that cover. And to, to be in a, in a strong position to do that, I think, depends also on calling out the modern libels uh, and the, the, the canards against the modern state of Israel and acknowledging that they are an attack on the Jewish people as a whole. The recent war raises a lot of old and new challenges. And we have to understand what is at stake. As Natasha Hausdorff said, this is a mutation of anti-Jewish hate. We must consider how the international scene, particularly its judicial aspects, plays a crucial role in Israel's capability to defend itself in a new reality. Natasha Hausdorff, Legal Director of UK Lawyers for Israel, thank you so much for joining us for this very, very important conversation and very timely. And thank you for everything that you do on behalf of the Jewish people and on behalf of justice. Thank you. Efrat, thank you so much. I know that you're consistently uh, fighting this fight also. Uh, and um, I would that there were many, many more just like you, because I know that you're showing a, a tremendous amount of leadership uh, and enthusiasm for tackling these issues. And I'm extremely uh, impressed by it and very grateful for it. Thank you for joining Jewish World, a podcast of World Jewish Congress Israel. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.